You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double Lemon. On today's episode, we have UFC 291, Poirier versus Gaethje 2, preview, predictions, and breakdown. UFC 291 takes place this upcoming Saturday evening from the Delta Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, with a main event bout for the second only ever BMF championship fight between Dustin, the Diamond Poirier, the former lightweight, interim lightweight champion, and Justin, the highlight Gaethje, another former interim lightweight champion in his own right. A rematch from back in around 2018-2019 for a pay-per-view five-round main event for the baddest mofo in the game. And then in the co-main event of the evening, you have a banger of a light heavyweight matchup between a two-weight Glory Kickboxing World Champion at middleweight and light heavyweight, and the former UFC middleweight champion in the number two ranked Alex Foatan Pereira, moving up to 205 pounds and taking on the former undisputed UFC light heavyweight champion and the number three ranked possessor of the Polish power, Jan Blahovich. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, you know what we're here to do, man. UFC 291 this Saturday. It's going to be a phenomenal card, and it's not as many fights as we've had to break down in the last couple weeks. We're only sitting at around 12 fights instead of the usual 14 or 15, so it gives us a little bit more time, I guess, to delve into some of these fights. But also, you know, the podcast probably isn't going to be as long as the last couple weeks. Um, We did very well the last two weeks in terms of overall picks, um, 10 in, or 11 and three on the Bueno Silva and home card, and then 10 and five on the UFC London card, which 10 and five isn't amazing, but it's not a bad week. And we're slowly but surely starting to come back and we're hoping to continue our winning ways and continue really solid picks on this podcast for you. So when it comes to this card, um, we are going to skip the Priscilla Cachuera and Miranda Maverick fight. Um, I mean, you guys probably think I hate women's MMA, but I mean, to be honest, women's MMA is a coin flip. I mean, just look at the Miranda Maverick, Jasmine Jazdavicius fight. She was like a minus 350, minus 400 favorite and got dominated in that fight by Jasmine Jazdavicius, who was over a plus 200 underdog. I think we could see a similar thing here where Cachuera allows Miranda Maverick to catch a beating on the feet. I think Cachuera can land heavy on her chin and hurt her. Obviously, with Maverick, you're going to be looking to get those takedowns, looking to grapple. But for the most part, you know, sticking and moving, kind of being a point-fighting style of fighter, fighting on the outside, using her movement and sticking and moving, moving in and out, and trying to point-fight her way to a victory and then get the takedowns and allow for positional control and top control on the ground. Um, I am going to side with the underdog in the plus 260 Priscilla Cachuera, though. I just think there's a lot more finishing upside from Cachuera. I know she's been finished before in her UFC career. I know that the cardio is probably going to be on the side of Maverick, but I think that she's just going to be able to catch Maverick on the chin and hurt her and then swarm her to get her out of there early on in the fight. So I guess I did break this down, even though I said I was going to skip it, but I'm going to go with Priscilla Cachuera as the plus 260 underdog to defeat Miranda Maverick. Um, part of the reason I picked that as well is because I just don't think she covers that minus 335 price tag. I don't think any women in women's MMA should be minus 300, minus 400, unless it's the top women in the sport, like an Amanda Nunes, like a Valentina Shevchenko. If those aren't 
if that's not who you are, there's no way you should have that high of a price tag. And um, I think this should be lying maybe minus 180. Miranda Maverick plus 150, Priscilla Cachuera. So if you're going to give me a plus 260 underdog shot on a person who has the higher finishing ability in the fight and who has the better opportunity to get their opponent out of there, then I'm going to take that all day. And I think the finishing upside, the power, and the overall strength goes to Priscilla Cachuera. So I'm going to take Priscilla Cachuera to defeat Miranda Maverick by first round TKO. All right, up next is a pretty interesting fight. And one I'm excited to break down in the welterweight division between Matthew Semi, the Gemini Semmelsberger, going up against Euros Medich. Um, this was a, a, a fun one to look back on the tape. And um, when I look at Matthew Semmelsberger, you know, you look at the fight against Jeremiah Wells. He was getting taken down. He was getting out grappled. But every time they were on the feet, he was catching Jeremiah Wells on the chin. And it's pretty similar to the fight with Jake Matthews, who we're going to talk about later and Matthew Semi, the Jedi Semmelsberger. Like, Semmelsberger's not going to win on volume. He's not going to win on takedowns. He's not going to win on wrestling. But for the most part, he is going to be looking to land that big power right hand. And that right hand lands on anybody's chin, it's going to be a problem. And you cannot, he can knock out just about anybody. But having that knockout power, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. You, you see you have that knockout power, and sometimes you rely on it. And, and it affects different parts of your game. It affects your kicking game. It affects your ability to use footwork and movement. It affects your wrestling. It affects your defensive wrestling um, because you're just looking to land that one shot. And does Matthew Semmelsberger have the ability to land one shot on the chin of Eros Medich and knock him out? Yeah, absolutely. Is it probably likely? Yes. If Semmelsberger wins, would it more than likely be a knockout? Yeah, 100%. But you look at Eros Medich, and the one thing I like about him, number one, is his kicking ability. Number two, he's a southpaw. So you're getting southpaw versus orthodox. It's going to be the battle of the outside foot, the lead outside foot positioning. And Eros Medic is very good at circling away. He's very good at getting that outside foot, good at shooting that straight left to be able to get off on that outside angle. He's got very good left body kicks. He's going to attack the inside low kicks against Semmelsberger. And um, I really like the left kick to the body. He just has to be defensively aware when he throws those kicks. If Semmelsberger just settles in, drives his foot into the mat, and fires off that counter right hand, like I said, the right hand's going to be dangerous from the minute the fight starts to the minute the fight ends. But when it comes to who has the better overall well-rounded game, I think that goes to Euros Medich. Who has the better, more technical striking? Euros Medich. Who has more weapons to land on the feet? Euros Medich. Who has the better footwork? Euros Medich. Um, I just think you really have to be careful of that right hand because it's not like Semmelsberger has a big left hook. It's not like he has a vicious uppercut. It's not like he has vicious knees, vicious head kicks, vicious body kicks. Vicious low kicks, he's just very good at finding the opportunity to set his feet and land the right hand, but he kind of falls in love with it, and it can cause him to fall behind on the scorecards. And going up against a guy in Medich who has very, very solid striking, who has the more well-rounded striking game, who has knockout power like we've seen showcased against Omar Morales. Um, I picked Jake Matthews to beat Semmelsberger, and he was winning every single round until he just got caught with that right hand and always got dropped. Every time that right hand or that one-two landed, he knocked them down. So I definitely think it could be a, a situation where Medich, you know, is winning every single round and just gets caught, get, gets clipped, and gets knocked out. I definitely think the knockout power is there for Semi the Jedi. But overall, I got to side with the more well-rounded fighter. I got to side with the fighter who's better defensively. I got to side with the fighter who's better, who has better footwork. I got to side with the fighter who has more weapons in his striking arsenal, including the kicking game to the body, to the legs the head kicks, and the ability to cut off on angles, slipping, pivoting, everything like that. And I think that's all Euros Medich. And I just can't side with Semmelsberger in this one. I just think, 
Like, yeah, if you're siding with Semmelsberger, you're siding with that one-punch knockout ability, but I don't necessarily love to side with those fighters unless it's against fighters where I know that that shot can mainly land, and it can land here, but for the most part, I just think the more well-rounded fighter is Earl Smedich, and that's why I'm going to go with him. So I'm going to take the plus 160 underdog. I think he's up to plus 175, plus 180 now. Um, I think he's faster. I think he has more weapons. I think he's more technical, and he's better defensively. So give me Eros Medich to defeat Matthew Semi, the Gemi Semmelsberger, via a third-round TKO. I think he eventually slows him down, works his body, and then finds a shot that puts Semmelsberger out later in the fight. All right, up next, we've got a battle in the flyweight division between CJ Vergara and Vinicius Salvador. I I'm kind of surprised. You know, this fight is... It's scary if you're on the side of Vergara, but at the same time, it's scary if you're on the side of Salvador. I think either side you're on on this fight, it's kind of scary, and I'm going to explain why. I look at CJ Vergara. He's got good footwork. He's got good movement. He's got a very good left body kick when he switches to southpaw. He's very good at switching stances between orthodox and southpaw. Um, he keeps his hands up, but he does get hit. Salvador, is he has a lot of power. He's got very solid, well-rounded kicking game or a very well-rounded kicking game to the legs, to the body, you know, faking and going up top to the head. Salvador is probably going to be the faster fighter. Um, he's going to probably be able to land combinations at a faster clip. He's going to have more power, in my opinion. Um, he's got very good takedown defense, very good ability to use the wizard and stuff the takedown, even if he gets taken down. Um, sometimes if he gets tired, he'll settle for position, and the, the fighter on the top can kind of work him over, but he's very active off of his back, very active at getting back up to his feet, using the butterfly sweep, um, using the half guard sweep, using the overhooks, using the underhooks to stand back up. Uh, sprawls are very on point, and I think this is a very difficult matchup for CJ Vergara, but when I look at it, I think the much te more technical fighter in this fight is CJ Vergara. I think the fighter with the better wrestling offensively is Vergara, even though I would say the defensive wrestling would probably be on the side of Salvador. But we've seen even if Vergara gets taken down, even if Vergara gets a takedown and gets reversed, he's able to work his way back up to the feet. You can see that in the fight against Shin Rodriguez. And the thing I like in this fight the most is the composure of Vergara. I think that Salvador is a lot more wild. He looks for the finish a lot more. And CJ Vergara is a fighter who does get hit. If you look at the fight against Daniel Lacerda, I mean, he got rocked two or three times early in the first round. Looked like he was going to be out of there. Weathered the storm, kind of ran around the cage a little bit. Weathered the storm and then was able to finish off Lacerda in the second round in a fight where it looked like Lacerda was going to get him out of there. Landed a wheel kick, landed some big punches, landed some good kicks, but he weathered the storm, survived, and then broke his opponent. Even in the fight against Clay Shin Rodriguez, I think CJ Vergara, he won the first round. Or I'm sorry, he lost the first round, I believe, um, and then he came back and won the second and the third. It was either that or he won the first round, lost the second, came back and won the third. But Vergara is a guy who's not going to quit on himself, and he's going to stick to the game plan. And I like that against the guy in Salvador. I think he has the sharper, cleaner boxing. I think that the more powerful kicks would come from Salvador, but I think the more technical kicks on the side of the overall technique is going to be Vergara. I think the better offensive wrestling comes on the side of CJ Vergara. I think the ability to stay composed in a matchup and the better defensively responsible, the more defensively responsible fighter. I think that's all Vergara. I think if he can survive the first round and land some good counters on a fighter in uh, 
Benicia Salvador, who's very wide open for counters, gets a lot of looping punches. You know, we hear straight punches beat looping punches, and that's what I think we're dealing with here. You have a guy who throws a lot of looping shots in Salvador, big left hooks, big right hooks, big uppercuts, you know, spinning back fists, big head kicks, big body kicks, but he leaves himself open for counters, and we've seen him get countered in his last fight where he lost via decision to Victor Altamiriano. He was getting countered. He was getting caught with body kicks, with same side hooks into the body kicks, you know, disguising the kick with the punches. And I think Vergara is sharp and clean enough to be able to catch Venecia Salvador in the middle of those combinations, in the middle of those wide looping shots. He'll be able to land the jab. He'll be able to land the straight shots. He'll be able to land his hooks from the left and right side. And I think he's going to be the better counter fighter. And I also think he'll be able to implement his wrestling the longer the fight goes. I'm going to go with a, a second round TKO for CJ Vergara here. I really like him. I know that if you're on the side of Salvador, you're thinking that, well, in that Lacerda fight, he got rocked. He got rocked. You know, if if um, Salvador rocks Vergara, and he's good, then he probably gets him out of there. And I think that that's 100% possible. I think that there is a case where Vinicius lands a big shot in the first round, hurts him, and just doesn't let up on him and gets him out of there. But for the most part, I, part, I just think Vergara is a lot more disciplined than Vinicius Salvador. I think he's a lot more composed inside the octagon. And I think he's a fighter who has a lot more mental toughness than a guy like Salvador inside the cage. He's going to stay composed. He's going to stay technical. He's going to stay tactical. And I see him landing the better, cleaner counter shots and kind of sneaking in his shots and counters between the wide punches of Salvador, slowing him down with the takedown attempts, getting some good reversals, being able to ground Salvador and getting a ground and pound TKO in round two. So give me CJ Vergara to defeat Venecia Salvador via second round ground and pound TKO as the minus 160 favorite. All right, up next, we move to the prelims in the welterweight division. You have a battle between Jake Matthews and a Dana White Contender Series alum and a Chicago native coming off the Contender Series, like I just mentioned, in Darius Beast Mode Flowers. Darius Flowers and Jake Matthews, man, this is an interesting fight. It's very, very hard to predict. Um, I think a lot of people are going to come in here and just use that Contender Series fade completely fade flowers and say that Matthews is a lot better. He's a lot more technical. He's got the more, much better, much cleaner boxing, the better wrestling, the better top control. And I would say that you're right on all of those fronts, but I think you have to worry about the durability of Jake Matthews. Uh, Darius flowers has a lot of power in his punches. He has decent kicks, but a lot of the times it's punches. He's got good elbows off the break inside the clinch. We've seen him knock out an opponent in LFA with a brutal elbow right over the top. He marches forward. He stays pretty compact keeps his guard up and kind of rolls with the punches, slips and rolls with the punches and looks for counters. Um, I think he's at a disadvantage everywhere this fight goes against Jake Matthews, but I do think he has the power to hurt Matthews. But at the same time, Matthews, even if he gets hurt, even if he gets rocked, he still stays in fights for the most part, but he gets hurt, wobbled or rocked in almost every single one of his fights. And you know, eventually that is going to catch up to him, but I don't see that being the case here against Darius Flowers. I think Flowers does have the finishing upside. I mean, you saw in the Contender Series, he slammed his opponent, and his opponent's shoulder got knocked out of place, so he didn't see much, but we've seen him land big knockouts, but for the most part, he has issues with the grappling, issues with getting taken down, and issues when the fighter who he's facing can control him from the top position, and I think that's something that we have to be careful with. There is a possibility that Jake Matthews uses that jab, feints the jab, shoots the takedowns, and is able to control Darius Flowers from the top position, 
land ground and pound and allow him to give up his back to lock up a submission or potentially sneak in his way into the full mount and landing vicious ground and pound. I also think Jake Matthews has the cleaner, sharper counters when it comes to the boxing. He's got a beautiful jab, a beautiful left hook, a good one too, but the best weapon on, his, on the feet for Jake Matthews is the counter check hook, the check hook, the counter hook, and the power hook. From the lead left side, he's very good at pivoting off with the hook, one, two, check hook, jab, check hook, and slipping off. But if Flowers can time it and counter it, he can come right down the middle and try to land a big shot on the chin of Matthews, who, like we said, does get rocked in a lot of his fights. I think this is a fight you stay away from in terms of betting unless you're going to play the plus 200 and up underdog in Darius Beast Mode Flowers. I think Matthews should win this fight. I think Matthews is technically better everywhere. I would say that Flowers is just better when it comes to the power. I think he's a lot more powerful than Jake Matthews. But I would never put Jake Matthews at a price tag like this, You know, especially after the last fight with Matthew Semmelsberger. I know he looked amazing against Fialo, but you look at the fight with Semi the Jedi. He's winning the fight. He's durable. He's outlanding Semmelsberger in every round. But he gets caught with a big right hand and gets knocked down. Now, we just talked about Semmelsberger. So, you know, we already kind of touched on that. But Matthews is going to be the more technical fighter. Matthews is going to be the more well-rounded fighter. Matthews has fought the better competition. But with fighters like this, man, there's always that X factor of, you know, can Darius Flowers pull off the upset? And I definitely think it's possible. And like I said, if you're going to play this fight, which I wouldn't recommend playing it at all. I wouldn't say playing the, the Matthews side. I wouldn't say playing the, the Flowers side. I wouldn't say to play the overs or the unders. I think that the Matthews and Flowers fight is a fight you stay away from completely. But if I'm going to tell you to play it in terms of value, I think you take a shot on the dog and Darius Flowers because he, he kind of has an X factor. We don't really know what to expect from him inside the UFC octagon because we didn't see much from him in the Contender Series fight because he was able to get that slam and you know knock the opponent out or injure the opponent to where the fight was stopped. And I did bet on Darius Flowers that night, but I'm not going to let that sway me into betting on this fight and picking Flowers again against a guy who's a lot more tested, who's at a lot tougher competition, and who's much better technically when it comes to the striking and the grappling. Um, I just worry about the durability of Matthews because of his chin issues and the, the fact that he gets knocked down in a lot of his fights. But um, I am going to go with Jake Matthews. I'm going to go with Jake Matthews via a second-round submission, but... Um, I think that if you're going to bet it, you just take a shot on Darius Flowers as the underdog. Like I said, I don't recommend betting it, but if I'm going to bet it, I would take a shot on Beast Mode as the underdog because I do think there's value there, even against a guy who's fought the better competition with the durability issues that we've seen from Matthews. But the pick is Jake Matthews' second round arm triangle choke. All right, and the next fight up is going to be a battle in the middleweight division between Roman Kapilov and Claudio Ribeiro. This is going to be a barn burner. This is going to be a firefight, and somebody is getting finished in this fight. Now, I know every time we say that, usually it ends up going to a decision, and people don't expect that to be the case, but Kapilov and Claudio Ribeiro, I mean, the much better technical fighter, the better technical kickboxer, the better fighter with counters is going to be Roman Kapilov. You know, he's going to be getting that outside foot against Ribeiro. He's going to be circling. He's constantly going to be moving laterally. He's going to stick that jab in his face, the right jab, and constantly try to land that left body kick, the left head kick, the one-two down the middle, and using the jab to kind of dictate the pace against Ribeiro. Ribeiro's a fighter who isn't the best technically, who leaves a lot of holes defensively, who can get tired, um, doesn't have the best defensive grappling, but he has that one-punch knockout power, that one-strike knockout power, and he can kind of leave 
you know, he can make things that aren't supposed to work, work for him because he's so athletic. He's a very good athlete. And I think that's the difference here. Kapalov is the better fighter. Kapalov is the better technician. Kapalov has the better counters, but I think Ribeiro's a better athlete. I think Ribeiro's a little bit wild. And when you fight a guy like Kapalov, being wild is a double-edged sword because I feel like you can't fight a kickboxing for kickboxing technical striking matchup with a guy like Roman Kapalov because he's going to beat you every single time. But you can't be too wild or too overly aggressive because you leave yourself open for counters, whether it's the jab, whether it's the straight left hand, whether it's the left body kick, the check right hook as you step into range. I think you leave yourself open for a lot of counters, and that is something that you have to be worried about. But I also think that, you, like I said, you can't fight super technical with a technician like Kapalov, so you have to kind of wean yourself into the fire and dive head first and try to land on his chin and knock him out. Kapalov is a guy who has been finished before. I think Ribeiro has the knockout power and the ability to catch Kapalov on the chin and put him to sleep if he lands a big straight a big straight punch, a big cross, a big hook, a big knee, a big flying knee, a big kick. Like if he lands on the chin of Kapalov, it's going to be a problem, but Ribeiro's a guy, again, who leaves his chin up in the air when he walks forward. Um, he gets clipped a lot in a lot of his fights. Even the fight he won against. Um, so he lost to Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, and then he won his last fight against, who was it? Let me see. Oh, Joseph Holmes. He beat Joseph Holmes. But even that fight was like a little bit closer than we would have wanted. And I mean, it was competitive. And I don't think that fight should have been competitive. Yes, Claudio Ribeiro finished him. Yes, he finished him on the ground with ground and pound. Um, you know, but he he got hit a lot. He, there was positions I didn't like. His defense wasn't there. And against a guy who's going to make you pay for your lack of defense, I think Kapalov runs through Ribeiro in this fight. Now, if you're just banking on the fact that Ribeiro is going to be a little bit too wild and just catch Kapalov with a big shot and knock him out, you know, catch him on an awkward angle, catch him on an awkward shot, then I definitely agree with that. I think that if you're on that side, that's how Ribeiro wins this fight. But I wouldn't recommend betting on Ribeiro even as a big underdog. I mean, you have... Roman Kapalov minus 220. I think he's even higher than that at this point. But I think he covers that price tag. The records are pretty similar. 10-2 and two for Kapalov, 11-3 for Ribeiro. But the better technical fighter is Roman Kapalov. The better footwork goes to the side of Roman Kapalov. The better jab, the better usage of the jab to dictate the range. Um, I think it's going to look very similar to the Punahele-Soriano fight. But I don't think that Ribeiro lasts as long as... Uh, Punahele did. I picked Punahele to beat Kapalov and he shut me down. You know, he couldn't really get much of anything off. He couldn't even land his power left hand. He was always getting, you know, Kapalov was slipping. He was angling off. He was pivoting. He was moving laterally. He was finding his openings and constantly sticking the jab in the face of Punahele, landing the left body kick against Alessio Di Chirico, using the jab, using the lateral movement, using the, ma the management of range, left body kick, boom, one, two down the middle, knocked out. Alessio Di Chirico, and I think this is Hapalov's time. I think Kapalov is on his way up, and I think Ribeiro is a stepping stone. I mean, he is dangerous. He is a dangerous fighter. He does have knockout power. He does have ways to land big shots and hurt his opponents, but for the most part, I just think Kapalov is so much better technically, and those technical differences and the defensive responsibility of Kapalov along with the defensive irresponsibility of Ribeiro when he leaves his chin up in the air is going to get exposed, and I think we're going to get a knockout from Roman Kapalov against Claudio Ribeiro. Ribeiro did get knocked out by Abdul Razak El-Hassan, and that was a fight where I was pretty heavy on the side of Ribeiro. I thought he was going to be able to catch him and knock him out, and he got clipped by Abdul Razak El-Hassan and knocked out himself. So I'm going to take Roman Kapalov here. I just think he's the better fighter like we've already touched on in the points we've made so far. 
Um, I'm going to take Roman Kopilov to win via a first-round knockout. I think he gets him out of there early. I could see it maybe getting in the second round, but I think he catches him with a big counter, drops some jumps on him, and gets a TKO. So give me Roman Kopilov to de- defeat Claudio Ribeiro, or Claudio Ribeiro via a first-round TKO. All right, up next is a fight that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time breaking down, and I don't really think you would fault me for that. It's a battle in the heavyweight division between Derek the Black Beast Lewis, who's the number 11 ranked heavyweight, going up against Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Um, I think Derek Lewis should be the underdog, and if you're going to bet on this fight, I would say don't bet on it. And if you are going to bet on it, bet against Derek Lewis. I'm going to be honest, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Derek Lewis has gotten better. He's shown improvements in his game, but he also seems like a fighter who's kind of just fallen out of love with mixed martial arts at this point. And I'm a big fan of the Black Beast. I'm a big fan of Derek Lewis. I've always been a proponent of his. I've always wanted to see him succeed. He does hold a victory over Francis Ngannou inside the UFC back at UFC 226. He won via decision, but... Um, I mean, he got that big knockout over Volkov in a fight where he was getting dominated and he knocked him out. And then the my balls was hot interview afterwards. But he knocked out Chris Dawkins, but we've seen what happened to Chris Dawkins in his UFC career. Both the Dawkins brothers are out of the UFC at this point, I believe. Um, and Marcos Rogerio de Lima, man, he's going to be chopping those low kicks. We saw it in his last fight against Waldo Cortez Acosta. And even though in the last round, um, he was getting boxed up and pieced up by Waldo Cortez Acosta because he got tired. I don't think he's going to have to worry about that from Lewis because Lewis isn't a volume fighter. He throws switch kicks. He throws head kicks, um, you know, but it's mainly just looking for that big right hand or a big uppercut or a big left hook. He's looking for a one-shot knockout, and he can land it on a lot of people. I mean, he was losing the fight to Curtis Blades, timed that uppercut on a level change, knocked him out cold. If Derek Lewis lands on the chin of Marcos Rogerio de Lima, I think he can definitely put him out. And I think that at that price, plus 150, plus 160 for Black Beast, I think everybody's looking at that underdog price tag and saying, well, that's value because he always has that knockout. Yeah, but Lewis is a knockout or bust. I don't think he outgrapples Rogerio de Lima. I think if they go to the ground, de Lima gets on top ground and pounds him and eventually submits the Black Beast. Even though Derek Lewis doesn't have the best get-up game, he kind of just uses his strength to push opponents off of him and work his way back up to the feet, but it's not technique-based. It's more just raw power and strength-based from the beast and Derek Lewis. But at the same time, Derek Lewis isn't a guy that I can back at this point in his career. I picked against him with Tai Tuivasa, and even though there were some rocky moments, he got knocked out. I picked against him with Sergei Pavlovich in his hometown. Um, it's just a guy I can't back, and I would never tell you to bet on him even at a big underdog price. I know people are going to say it covers the price tag because his knockout upside but I don't think he does, man. I think if you bet this fight, it's Marcos Rogerio de Lima inside the distance all day. I just don't think Derek Lewis really is in love with the MMA game anymore. I don't think that he wants to be in there. And I think once the wheels start to fall off for Lewis, um, I know he stayed in the fight with Volkov and, and you know got beat up on and found, found a way to win. But I don't think Derek Lewis looks to find a way to win at this point in his career. I think he finds a way to get out of there and just make his money and go home. And that pains me to say because I'm a huge fan of of Derek Lewis, and I'm not trying to completely disrespect or discredit this guy because he could knock my head off into friggin' from, from over here in Chicago all the way to Texas. And I love the Black Beast, but I just don't see him getting it done. And I don't see him getting it done in a lot of fights in his career at this point. And this might be his last one. I mean, maybe he sticks around, but I think DeLima uses those calf kicks early and often, but he's going to have to look out for the counter right hand off those calf kicks if, if Lewis just braces and throws that power right 
and catches Dalima on the chin. He can hurt him. He can knock him out. But if he gets the takedowns, I think Dalima ground and pounds him, passes into mount like butter, can get a ground and pound TKO, can submit him. I think he chops those low kicks early, slows down the Black Beast. And once the Black Beast leg starts to give out, he really starts to want to quit on himself. And I think uh, Dalima hurts him with the calf kicks, takes him down and ground and pounds him into a uh, second round TKO. So I'm going to go with Marcos Rogerio de Lima to defeat the number 11 ranked Derek the Black Beast Lewis via second round ground and pound TKO. Um, at the price tag of minus 180 plus 155, I think this is a fight you stay away from whether you're on the Lewis side or de Lima. I could see the value on the side of Lewis from the knockout upside, but other than that, I don't see the value on that underdog price tag, even though Lewis fought the better competition. It's not the same Derek Lewis now that we had back in the day when he was knocking out Volkov and staying in the fight. And when he beat the guy, you know, guys like Francis Ngannou, it's not the same Derek Lewis. He looks for ways out a lot more now than he did before. And that's why I got to go with MRDL. I'm going to go with Myrtle Marcos Rogerio de Lima to defeat Derek Lewis second round ground and pound TKO as the minus 180 favorite. All right. And then to wrap up the prelims, we've got a battle in the welterweight division between the other half of the Bonfim brothers and Gabriel Bonfim coming in undefeated, 14 wins, no losses, going up against a very tough, tested, and respectable veteran in Trevin Giles. Um, I think this fight is pretty self-explanatory, and I don't think we have to break it down for too much time. But at the same time, I don't think that Bonfim is a guy that you really supremely heavily want to bet on. And I'm not saying I don't think he wins this fight because I do, but Giles is a very solid jab. He's very good with it. His timing is very good. There's no telegraph. He uses his jab very well, his footwork, his head movement, but he does get clipped. He does get hurt on the feet. But even in Bonfim's win, win against Munir Lazez, when he was throwing those big left hooks, the right hooks, the straight rights, the uppercuts, he leaves his chin in the air. And if Giles can time it and keep landing that jab, I think he can, you know, keep the range, keep the distance and kind of pick apart Gabriel Bonfim by using his jab. He's got very good boxing and the jab is his best weapon from Trevin Giles. Using that jab, popping the jab, using lateral movement, pop, pop, faint, pop, faint, pop, pop, and constantly circling and moving around. I think that he can kind of point fight his way to a victory, but eventually I think Bonfim either lands a big overhand right over the jab, slips inside the jab, overhand right, or overhand right, left hook to the body, left hook up top to the head, or overhand right, left hook to the chin. I think he hurts Trevin Giles on the feet, and then when he drops him or rocks him, he takes his neck and submits him. I'm going to go with Gabriel Bonfim to submit Trevin Giles, but I can see a scenario where Giles kind of moves around and kind of sticks and moves and goes slick on him and just kind of keeps that jab in his face and picks him apart. He's got good wrestling. He's got good jujitsu, does Trevin Giles. But the grappling and ground game is so much heavier on the side of the other Bonfim brother in the undefeated Gabriel Bonfim. I mean, even when he beat Munir Lazez, he grabbed his neck real fast and just threw him down from the front headlock, got into the mount guillotine, and that was it. And he got it so fast. Like it wasn't even, there, there was like literally two seconds between the takedown attempt to the mounted guillotine. And when you can do that that fast with that much technique and be that technical with the jiu-jitsu, I have to side with the Bonfim brother here. I have to go with Gabriel Bonfim. I think he's going to catch Giles on the feet with a big shot. He's going to get rocked. He's going to grab his neck and he's going to lock up a Darce choke and submit him in the opening round. I'm going to go with Gabriel Bonfim to submit Trevin Giles via Darce choke in round one. But this is a fight where I think if you're going to bet it, you would take the under 2.5 rounds. I think the best bet for the fight is the under. 
Um, Bonfim on this UFC website, he says he's plus 260 as an underdog. If that was the case, I would tell you to bet everything you have on Bonfim as that big of an underdog. But I think they just got the um, the odds wrong here. I think it's minus 315 for Bonfim, plus 260 for Giles. There is value on Giles because, like I said, if he can keep it at a distance, keep it at his range, stop the takedowns, and stick the jab in the face of Bonfim, he is the more technical striker. But the power on the feet, the finishing upside on the feet, and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu phenomenon in Gabriel Bonfim, I think is just too much for Giles at this point. He rocks him, grabs his neck, and submits him in round one. Gabriel Bonfim, round one, Dar's choke submission. All right, and now we're going to move to the main card in the first fight up in the welterweight division between the returning Michael Maverick Chiesa, who comes in with a record of 18 victories and six defeats, going up against Kevin Trailblazer Holland, who's had a pretty successful run at 170 pounds. And um, I think he's looking to continue the momentum that he has. Looking at this fight, you're, you're going to say striker versus grappler, and you'd be right. You know, I expect if Michael Chiesa is going to win this fight, he's going to be shooting those takedowns, getting the top position, controlling from the full mount, taking the back, flattening out the opponent, looking to lock up a rear naked choke, looking to lock up an arm bar. He's going to be looking to take down Kevin Holland and control him. Because if this fight stays on the feet and it's a striking matchup, Kevin Holland is going to have the longer range, at least in terms of being able to use his range to his... Um, you know, striking success and aiding in the striking success. He's going to have a four and a half inch reach advantage. Or I'm sorry, what is it? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, five and a half inch reach advantage, 81 inch reach, 75 and a half inch reach for Michael the Maverick Chiesa. He's going to have a two inch height advantage, and that's going to be very evident on the feet. If Michael Chiesa wins this fight, he's going to have to get in on the takedowns, get the top control, you know, use the Dagestani handcuff, use the wrist ride, look to lock up the neck of Kevin Holland. And he definitely can because we've seen Holland have issues with wrestling against the likes of a Derek Brunson. We saw him have issues with the wrestling takedowns and submission attempts of Hamzat Chemaev. We've seen him get taken down and out-wrestled by Marvin Vittori. But again, those are middleweights. This is the welterweight division. Michael Chiesa is a very strong grappler. He's very big for this division. But I don't think he's going to be able to hold down Kevin Holland you know, for extended amounts of time in the round. But it's not just that. I don't think it's going to be easy for Michael Chiesa to get the takedowns. I mean, the last time we saw Michael Chiesa inside the UFC octagon, I think was back in 2020. Um, or no, it was 2021. Hold on, let me see. Maybe it was 2020, but I think it was 2021. Uh, it was in... Let's see. Yeah, so it was November of 2021. Now he's coming back July 2023. So almost two years away in that decision loss to Sean Brady. Um, but even in that fight, he looked good. He landed good straight left hands. He landed good one-twos. His striking didn't look that crisp and clean, but he was outstriking Sean Brady on the feet. But he got taken down, got, got out-positioned, got out-wrestled. Before that, he got submitted in the first round with a Darce choke by Vicente Luque back at UFC 265. I think you're looking at this fight and people are going to say, like we've already talked about, you know, the grappling, the wrestling advantage, the top control advantage, the submission advantage, submission advantage all go to Michael Chiesa. And that is true, but at the same time, we've seen Chiesa get submitted. Like in that fight against Luque, he was getting takedowns. He was going for submissions in his own right. He went for a choke. 
Um, it was either a choke or an armbar. I think he went for a choke. Luke got out of it and then followed through to lock up the Darce choke on the much longer, taller, rangier fighter. And Kevin Holland can lock up on the long neck or long limbs of Michael Chiesa because he's also a very long, rangy fighter. He's got good submission attempts off of his back. But for the most part, his success when it comes to the grappling is either landing vicious strikes off the back where he can knock you out, you know, even if he's on his back with up kicks, with, with punches, or, you know, controlling from the top position. But for the most part, he likes to keep it on the feet, keep it at his range, land the long one-twos, you know, side kicks to the body, hook kicks to the head. And I think if this fight stays on the feet, you know, I know Michael Chiesa has been active in terms of being on the podcast with John Anik and Paul Felder, being on the commentary table in the UFC, but he hasn't fought in a, in a really long time. And I know he's still active in the MMA game, but I think this is Kevin Holland's fight. Obviously, if Kiesa continues to get the takedowns and out-wrestles Holland, that's the clear path to victory for Kiesa. Get the takedowns, control, side control, full mount, take the back. That is going to be his path to victory for Kiesa against Holland. And with Holland, it's going to be keeping it on the feet, landing the long jabs, the one-twos, you know, side kicks to the body, front kicks up the middle, and just being the more dangerous and, re, you know, more active striker on the feet and knocking out Michael Chiesa. But I actually think that Kevin Holland is going to submit Michael Chiesa. And I say that because we've seen it. We've seen him get submitted in fights where people would expect him to be the better grappler. He gets caught in submissions because he gets out scrambled. He he gives up a bad position. And I think he gets hurt on the feet by Holland, gets gets land like a big one-two or potentially a sidekick to the head. Like like he lands a one-two, hurts Kiesa, Kiesa shoots, and then Kevin Holland grabs the neck in a guillotine and submits. Michael Chiesa. I don't like the inactivity, even though he's still been around the UFC. I don't like the inactivity. I don't like the fact that even though he is the better grappler in a lot of the fights that he is in, he's big for this division. He was huge for lightweight, um, but he still makes mistakes and gives up positions. Now, so does Kevin Holland. So, I mean, I would say, like I said, the better grappler on paper and the better grappler and better positional technician would be Michael Chiesa, but I still think Holland hurts him and finds a way to grab that neck and submit Michael Chiesa because, like I said, we've seen it before. So I'm going to go with Kevin Trailblazer Holland to submit Michael Maverick Chiesa or Michael the Maverick Chiesa via a second-round guillotine choke submission. All right, moving on to the next fight, we've got the lightweight division between Tony El Kakui Ferguson and Bobby King Green. Now we know Bobby Green in his last fight, he had that TKO win over Jared Gordon, but it was due to an accidental clash of heads. And then he followed up on the ground, knocked him out. But before that, he was getting boxed up, out jabbed, out hooked by Jared Gordon. And he didn't look good. He looked slow. He looked off. And you know, before that, he got knocked out by Drew Dober. So we don't know what kind of Bobby Green we're going to expect. And Tony Ferguson, man, 0-5 in, in his last five fights. I think 1-6 in, in his last six, or 1-5 in, in his last six. And this is not Tony Ferguson. I know he dropped Michael Chandler in their fight before he got front kicked in the second round and knocked out. But um, this is not the same Tony Ferguson. And if this was prime versus prime, I would say that Tony Ferguson probably wins. He probably outstrikes Bobby Green, lands vicious elbows, spinning elbows, you know, a tomahawk elbows and probably locks up a submission, but this is not the Tony Ferguson we're going to get. Now he's been knocked out. He's been 
Uh, he's lost a bunch of decisions. He got beat to a bloody pulp in that late TKO at UFC 249 against Justin Gaethje. This is just not the same Tony Ferguson. He looked like a complete shell of himself in his last fight against Nate Diaz at UFC 279. And if the fight was going to be against Li Jingliang like it was originally scheduled to be, I think that Li Jingliang would have knocked him out cold again, just like Michael Chandler did. But this time it would have been with the boxing. I think Bobby Green is the better boxer. He's going to be the better defensive fighter by a mile. You know, Tony Ferguson's going to be open for strikes on the feet. The better grappler is Tony Ferguson. The better submission artist is Tony Ferguson. If Bobby Green gets caught with a, a big straight shot and gives up his neck where Tony can take him to snap down city and lock up a Dar's choke, that is his specialty. Lock up a Dar's spin, take the back, lock up the rear naked choke. You know, land a, an up kick from the from the bottom like the Ultimate Fighter or um, like an axe kick. But I just don't see that, man. This is not the same Tony Ferguson that went on that huge win streak that had that war with Anthony Pettis. You know, this is not the same Tony Ferguson that submitted uh, Edson Barbosa, went back and forth with Rafael Dos Anjos. That Tony's gone, man. He's dead and gone. This is the ghost of Tony Ferguson going up against... Yes, I would say a declining Bobby Green just based off of that last performance against Jared Gordon, but still who I believe to be the more technical, better defensive, and better offensive fighter than Tony Ferguson. And I think at this point in his career, Bobby Green is a lot better than Tony Ferguson. Now, would I like to see Tony Ferguson get the win? Yeah, I would because I think it's just it would be a good send-off for Tony El Kakui Ferguson to come in here, get a submission win, catch Bobby Green, hurt him, and choke him out. Like, yeah, everybody wants to see that for Ferguson, but Ferguson is not the same guy. I've said it multiple times. After he lost to Gaethje, I always say, I've said it since then, do not bet on Tony Ferguson. And the one time I did, I put him in like a 10-leg parlay at UFC 279, and I picked him instead of Nate Diaz, and I lost the parlay. 9 out of 10, Lost on Tony Ferguson. It was for like 1100 1200 bucks, And, you know, I would have hit it. Luckily for me, I still hit some other plays for that night. But I went against my own judgment, my better judgment, and picked against him. Or picked him to win against Nate Diaz, even though I said I would never pick him again. I picked Benil Dariush to beat him. I picked Charles Oliveira to beat him. I picked Justin Gaethje to beat him. I've picked everybody to beat Tony Ferguson, except when I went against my own better judgment and picked Nate Diaz, and I was wrong. So I'm not going to do that to myself again, even though there are avenues where he can beat a guy like Bobby Green, and I do think Bobby Green is declining at this point. I still think Bobby Green is at a much higher ceiling or has a much higher ceiling in his MMA career at this point than Tony Ferguson, and I think he's much more durable. He hasn't taken as much damage. He's better defensively, better offensively, really solid boxing, and I think he pieces up Tony Ferguson on the feet and knocks him out. I'm going to go with Bobby King Green to just box up Tony Ferguson. You can catch him and eventually get a TKO finish over Tony Elkakui Ferguson, and I mean the, the betting line – would recommend that as well, considering Bobby Green's like minus 375, minus 400. Um, I would never bet on Bobby Green at that price tag. I would probably play the under, the under 2.5 rounds at the best. That would be my my best play would be fight doesn't go to decision or under 2.5 rounds if you're looking to target this fight from any side of the betting perspective. I, I would not bet on Tony Ferguson. If you do bet on Tony Ferguson, I would say Tony by submission is your really only way to bet Ferguson at this point in his career, but I don't see it happening. I, I, I would love to see it happen, even though I'm a big Bobby Green fan. I, I want to see Tony at least get one more big win. And, you know, like I said, he did catch Chandler in that fight and looked good early, won the first round, but eventually got knocked out, front kicked, and sent to the shadow realm. I think Bobby Green boxes him up and eventually TKOs him. So give me Bobby King Green 
as the minus 375, minus 400 favorite to defeat Tony Ferguson via second round TKO. When it comes to the bets, if you're on the Ferguson side, you take Ferguson by sub. But for me, I would say Bobby Green by knockout or the under 2.5 rounds is your best way to target this fight from a betting perspective. But the pick, Bobby Green, second round TKO. All right, up next, you're going to move to the welterweight division in a battle between the number seven ranked Steven Wonderboy Thompson and the number 15 ranked Michelle Pereira. And this is a fight that's very, very confusing and very tricky. Excuse me. It's very tricky to make a pick in this one, man, because the better overall striker is Steven Thompson. The more technical striker is Steven Thompson. The better defensive fighter is Steven Thompson. You know, the more wild, outlandish, outrageous fighter who throws, you know, spinning hammer fist, jumping hammer fist, um, flying knees to right hands like he knocked out Danny Roberts with. One, twos, uh, Showtime kicks off the cage. That's all Michelle Pereira. And Pereira has a good grappling game too. I think if he resorts to his wrestling and grappling against Wonderboy, that's an area we've seen Wonderboy struggle with time and time again. I think Pereira is the much stronger fighter. I think he can take Steven Thompson down, get to the top position, and land some good ground and pound. Um, maybe lock up a submission, but I don't think he submits him. But I could see him ground and pounding Steven Thompson and getting him out of there because, like I said, I do give him the grappling advantage over Wonderboy. If this is a technical kickboxing matchup, I mean, you have to side with Steven Thompson. And he's been looking very good lately in his career. I mean, the win over Kevin Holland, he got hurt, got rocked early, but he looked good. He outstruck him. He rocked him. Uh, and then he eventually got that fourth round. I think it was a fourth round TKO. The corner stopped it, stepped in, but he was rocking Kevin Holland all over. His counters looked good. His shot selection was good. Um, he mainly has problems against guys who are grapplers. If you strike on the feet with Steven Thompson, more than likely, he's going to outstrike you and he's going to beat you when it comes to a striking matchup. The only person who was really able to win a striking matchup against him, I guess you could say Tyron Woodley in the rematch, but I still think that Steven Thompson won that fight at UFC 209, but the only guy who was ever really able to beat Steven Thompson on the feet was a guy by the name of Anthony Showtime Pettis, and he was able to do that by chopping the low kicks across the legs. He was attacking the back leg, but he was getting pieced up. He was getting hit with big shots, straight punches, you know, the karate style one-twos down the middle. He was getting hit with body kicks, getting hit with low kicks, and you know, kind of getting pieced up by Wonder Boy until he used those low kicks over and over again and then landed that Superman punch off the cage, kind of like a, it was less of a Superman punch and more of like a Superman rear hook hybrid that caught Steven Thompson on the chin as he was in the side stance backing away. He was able to get perpendicular to Steven Thompson and knew that he was going to be backing up in a straight line because he knew that Pettis was back to the cage. He threw it like a hook because if he threw it straight, it probably would have gone past his head. But since Steven Thompson was in that side stance and more perpendicular instead of parallel, he was able to catch that hook because it was a wide shot instead of a straight shot. If it was a straight Superman punch, Wonderboy probably would have been able to get out of the way. But since he was backing up straight and not moving laterally, he was able to catch him as he tried to move away with that Superman punch and knock him out. That was a huge win for Anthony Pettis, arguably one of the biggest wins in his MMA career in the 170-pound division. But I think Michelle Pereira is dangerous for a guy like Thompson, and it's for the same exact reasons that Anthony Pettis was dangerous, because he has that wild striking style. He's going to get in the face of Wonderboy. He's going to throw flying knees, uppercuts, spinning wheel kicks, you know, touch the floor, spin, flying knee, front kick, spinning wheel kick. He's going to be coming at him with every type of strike 
in the game. And if he can't land the striking and he's maybe getting pieced up, he can use the wrestling and the grappling because he is the much stronger fighter, in my opinion. I think he will be able to get takedowns. But at the same time, if he strikes for too long against Wonderboy and it becomes a technical point-fighting style of matchup, Pereira is going to get pieced up. But that wild striking style, the zany style of Michelle Pereira, I think can give Wonderboy a lot of trouble, especially at this point in his career. You know, he looked very good against Holland, but Michelle Pereira is a different kind of guy. He's got a different power from the likes of Kevin Holland. He throws, he's much more athletic than a guy like Kevin Holland. He throws very athletic type of strikes and movements, you know, a lot of switching stances, flying knees, you know, uppercuts, spinning kicks. Um, Showtime kicks off the cage like we talked about. And I think that that wild striking style, it could get him caught and could get him knocked out by a technician like Wonderboy. But I think he's going to catch Wonderboy, man. Originally going into this, I was going to side with Wonderboy because he is the better technician. But the only guy who knocked him out was a guy who, yes, is a technical striker, but through those wild crazy strikes and through stuff that was unorthodox. And that was Anthony Pettis. And I see a lot of similarities in Pereira's style, not from a technical Taekwondo overall style, but just an overall game of being wild, throwing that unorthodox, you know, those unorthodox techniques to where he can catch Wonderboy slipping, hit him on the chin and knock him out. And like I said, even if he can't, I think he can use his wrestling and grappling to take down Wonderboy and you know, potentially submit him or ground and pound him or just win the rounds based on control. Um, I wouldn't bet a prop on this fight, but I am going to side with the plus 140 underdog in Michelle Pereira to be able to defeat Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And I'm going to go by a knockout. I just think he's too unorthodox and too wild. And yes, he's going to be open for the strikes of Thompson, but I think eventually he lands one of those big straight left hands. He lands a big flying knee, catches Wonderboy on the chin, and knocks him out. I just, I don't know. I feel like, I just have a feeling that Pereira is going to catch him with something crazy and knock out Wonderboy and get him out of there. So give me the plus 140 underdog in Michelle Pereira to defeat Steven Wonderboy Thompson via a second round knockout victory as the plus 140 underdog. All right, and now we move to one of my favorite fights on the card, and I think a fight that a lot of people are looking forward to, and that's, you know, no surprise. It's in the light heavyweight division between the former light heavyweight champion and the possessor of the Polish power, the number three ranked fighter in Jan Blachowicz, taking on the number two ranked middleweight, moving up to light heavyweight, former glory kickboxing world champion at middleweight and light heavyweight, and a former UFC middleweight champion coming off that knockout loss to the former champion Israel Adesanya at UFC 287 in Alex Boatan Pereira. Alex Pereira versus Jan Blahovich is a very intriguing matchup, and this fight could be over in a blink of an eye. I think that there are clear advantages for both men, and we'll start on the side of the former light heavyweight champion and the natural light heavyweight, I guess you could say, in Blahovich first. Blahovich is going to have the grappling advantage, and the smart idea is to start striking, use a cross or a jab, and use that to enter into a takedown, take Pereira down, get in the top position, ground and pound and choke him out. That's Jan Blahovic's path to victory. Use the grappling, use the top control, use the wrestling. Look to land some ground and pound, potentially even could knock him out with ground and pound, but eventually look to either get an arm triangle, look for him to give up his back and lock up a submission and make quick work of the former middleweight champion. 
Blahovich also has a win over Alex Pereira's rival and the man who knocked him out in their last fight at, in UFC 287 or at UFC 287 in Israel, Adesanya. The way he won that fight was with the straight right hand into the lead left body kick and by using the wrestling, the takedowns, the grappling, the top control, you know, taking down Adesanya, working from the full guard, passing over to side control, working to pass to mount, working from the half guard and just grounding Adesanya out wrestling him, out striking him. He was even kind of out striking him at some points as well. But the main bread and butter that Blahovich used to defeat Adesanya when he moved up to light heavyweight was the wrestling and the grappling. And if he does that against Pereira, he 100% could just out wrestle him, out grapple him. I think Blahovich has the power to knock out Alex Pereira. Pereira is very susceptible to that rear right hand. I mean, he got caught with it in the first UFC fight against Adesanya at UFC 281. Um, he used that jab, then like stutter stepped in with the jabs, left the jab out there to kind of measure and change the timing, and then came over the top with the right hand, and then bang, landed a left hook and dropped Alex Pereira, or didn't drop him, but sat him down in a chair, but the round ended. And then in their rematch at UFC 287, he caught him with the same thing, and he caught him back in the kickboxing days as well. The jab, the jab, leaving the jab out there to measure, and then bang, coming over with the right hand, he heard him, followed through with the left hook or like a left hook uppercut hybrid, dropped Pereira, landed some hammer fists, and knocked him out. Um, first win for Adesanya over Pereira and kind of conquering his demons. And with this Blahovich fight, man, I think Blahovich can outstrike Pereira. But to be honest, man, the longer you stay on the feet with Alex Pereira, the more likely you are to get knocked the fuck out. And that's kind of what I see, man. Like, like obviously, the wrestling, the takedowns, that's going to be the path to victory for Blahovich. Blahovich can land a brutal left hook. He's got a vicious left hook. He knocked out Luke Rockhold with it. Um, brutal right cross into switch left body kick. Good takedowns. Uh, really good low kicks, but Pereira has solid low kicks and calf kicks as well. Um, he doesn't even really turn his hip over. He kind of just, just stick kicks out there, kicks his foot out there, and almost kicks up to the side of your calf, hitting that peroneal nerve. He hurt Adesanya with it in the second fight at UFC 287 before the knockout combination, and it led to a brutal barrage of uppercuts, hooks, straights, and knees up the middle. Looked like Pereira was going to get him out of there until he got caught with that right hand, but um, the longer you stay on the feet, at least in Blahovich's case against Pereira, the more likely you are to get sent to the shadow realm, and I think that stays true at light heavyweight, even like it was at middleweight. You look at the height, Pereira is going to have a two inch height advantage at 6'4, and he's going to have a one inch reach advantage. But the reach advantage is more going to be on the side of Pereira because he fights long. He's very good on the inside as well with hooks, uppercuts, knees, but he likes to use that jab, loves to use that one two. But his main weapon in his bread and butter is that left hook. And if he catches anybody on the chin at light heavyweight, I'll say that too. Even if it's at light heavyweight, he catches anybody on the chin with that left hook. He knocks them out. Um, I think he's expecting Blahovich to come in heavy with the wrestling, but at the same time, even if that's the game plan you're expecting, you can't over-rely on your wrestling defense and allow yourself to forget and neglect the striking defense because Pereira doesn't have the best striking defense. He gets hit a lot. He uses his arms to kind of parry and like down block a lot of the punches and then come back with his jab, come back with his one, two. He kind of keeps his chin up in the air, keeps his hands out in front of him, almost with his elbows in to block body shots and then kind of catches, 
Perry's encounters with his own shots, but he's only got, a, it says 54% striking defense, which is the same as Blahovich. But at the same time, man, I think the Blahovich is a little bit better defensively on the feet, but I do think the speed advantage is going to be on the side of Pereira. The technical advantage on the feet is on the side of Pereira. The power advantage, I would give it to Pereira because I think he's a little bit better technically. But at the same time, if Blahovich lands that big right hand, like we've said, Pereira is susceptible to over his jab. He lands that big right hand. He can knock out Alex Pereira. It could look very similar to the Corey Anderson fight where he steps in, he catches him with that right hook or that right hand and drops Pereira. You have to think UFC 287. I know we're, you know, four events past that, but he just got knocked out back in April of this year, May, June, July. It's only been about three months since Pereira suffered that brutal knockout with brutal ground up, ground and pound follow-up. I know moving up in weight, his chin is going to be better. He's not going to be as, you know, sucked out with the weight. He's going to be, you know, better in terms of overall brain health, you know, rehydration. But we're also in Salt Lake City, Utah, and that's something I think you have to look at for every single one of these fights. Who is going to be better in terms of being acclimated to the elevation? This is in Colorado. Or I'm sorry, this is in Colorado. This is in Utah. So there's very, very, very high elevation. And the last time they were out in Utah, a lot of the fights didn't play out that exciting because the cardio was such a problem. You have to get acclimated to high altitude. And I think that Pereira, if he has to stuff takedowns from the opening bell, it's going to be harder for him to stuff them at altitude because his cardio isn't going to be as good. But to be honest, man, and this goes into my prediction, I don't really think he's going to have to stuff too many takedowns because I think he knocks Blahovich out in the first round. I'm going to be honest. I think he catches Blahovich. I think he's going to be throwing a lot of low kicks. I think he's going to throw some front kicks up the middle. I think we're going to see a lot of attacks up the center channel, flying knees, uppercuts, you know, upward elbows, front kicks. I think he's expecting the takedowns, which again can open him for striking on the feet and open him for shots from Blahovich, who does have the legendary Polish power. I think just as much as Pereira can knock out Blahovich, Blahovich can knock out Pereira, especially coming off of that vicious knockout loss. Pereira, or I'm sorry, Blahovich did you know, have that draw against Ankalaev where he started off really strong with the calf kicks, the low kicks, was was beating up Magomed Ankalaev, and then the last three rounds he kind of just took the fight off, and the fight ended up going to a draw, and, you know, a lot of people thought Blahovich should have won that fight, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that this is going to be a case of who implements their game plan first. If Blahovich takes down Pereira early and he's able to get it easy and he's able to control him, I think Blahovich out wrestles him, ground and pounds him, and eventually submits him or TKOs him. If Pereira is able to avoid the takedowns, if he's able to keep it at his range, if he's able to keep the jab in the face of Blahovich and avoid any of the big counters, I think he can knock out Blahovich. And I think that's really what the case is. I mean, we've seen Blahovich get knocked out before by the likes of Tiago Magenta Santos. And Santos has a lot of power. Santos isn't as technical, but he has a lot of power. But I believe he did get knocked out with a left hook, even though it was a stance switch left hook. And one of the best left hooks in the game comes from Alex Poatan Pereira. And he's a lot more technical than Santos. I believe he's much more technical on the feet than Blahovic, even though Blahovic is better defensively, even though the stats don't necessarily agree with that too much. Um, 2.81 strikes absorbed per minute for Blahovic to 3.76 for Alex Poatan Pereira. So they both take a lot of shots, but you know, Pereira gets hit a little bit more. I would say Blahovich is more durable 
And, you know, I think he can take the shots, but I don't think he can take the shot of an Alex Pereira. I don't think he can take that left hook, man. And I don't think there's a lot of people on the planet who can take that left hook in the UFC. And I think he goes for that right cross into the switch kick to the body. I think Pereira times him stepping in and bangs him with that left hook on the chin and knocks him out in the first round. So my pick is going to be another underdog. I'm going with the former middleweight champion, um, it says minus 110 on here and minus 120 for Blahovich, but I think he's up to plus 105. I'm going to go with the plus 105 underdog in the UFC light heavyweight debut in the former middleweight champion, former two-weight glory kickboxing champion at middleweight and light heavyweight, and Alex Poetan Pereira to land that left hook on the chin of Jan Blahovich and knock him out in the opening round. Um, I don't think Pereira wins a decision. I could see him maybe submitting Blahovich, and I know you're going to call me crazy, but what if he rocks Blahovich really bad and Blahovich shoots a, a, a sloppy takedown and Pereira just grabs his neck in a guillotine, man? Pereira's a strong guy. He's been working with Glover Teixeira. I think his grappling and you know wrestling and his grappling defense is going to be a little. It's going to be a lot better going into this fight. But if he relies on a wrestling heavy game plan, I don't think it's going to work. But the only man in the UFC besides Marvin Vittori and Jan Blahovich to take down Adesanya is, well, if, you know, not I can't even say that because Robert Whitaker took him down, but Pereira took him down in the first fight. And then in the second fight, you know, he got out-wrestled and out-grappled. Or I'm sorry, he was getting out-wrestled and out-grappled by Adesanya in the first fight, and then he got that fifth-round TKO, at least in the UFC. And then in the second fight, it, it ended pretty quick. But I think Blahovich's grappling is, or I'm sorry, I think Pereira's grappling is getting better but at the same time, it's not going to be up to par with Blahovich. But I could see him hurting Blahovich, rocking him, and grabbing his neck and subbing him. But I'm going to go with Alex Pereira via first-round knockout. I just think he he catches Blahovich stepping in on a, on a combination, lands that left hook on the counter, and knocks him out. I, I got to go with Pereira here. Maybe it's not the smartest pick, but I just see him catching Blahovich on the chin and putting him away. So give me the minus 110, plus 105 underdog, and Alex Poetan Pereira to defeat Jan Blahovich via first-round knockout in his UFC light heavyweight debut. All right, and now we get to the final breakdown, the final fight, the main event of the evening for the UFC's BMF championship. But to be honest, this is just a five-round main event with no title for me, and that's what I'm looking at this as. It's going to be a phenomenal fight. It's going to be a violent fight, and both men are going to come out looking for a finish. This is a rematch from back in 2000. In eight, 2019, I believe, 2018. Let me see. I'll look it up for you guys right now. Um, the 2018? Yep, April 2018 in a five-round main event on UFC Fox 29. The UFC on Fox 29. So April 2018 to July of 2023, five years in the making, a five-round main event again between the former interim lightweight champions in Dustin the Diamond Poirier coming off of that submission victory over Michael Chandler versus Justin the Highlight Gaethje. Number two versus number, number three, Gaethje is coming off that decision victory against Rafael Faziv back at, I believe, UFC 286. Yes, UFC 286. Listen, man, this fight is going to be a lot different from the first fight on the side of Justin Gaethje, I, I believe. Just from what I've seen, and you can go back, and I think you can take a lot from the second fight or third fight with Conor McGregor from Dustin Poirier 
uh, second and third fights. And then you can take a lot from the Rafael Fazib fight with Justin Gaethje. The biggest difference, I think, in this point in time is the composure of Justin Gaethje. I feel like he's a much more composed fighter than the first time that these guys fought. The first time it was a phone booth war. Both of them were going at it. Gaethje was having a lot of success with the inside low kick against the opposite stance fighter in Poirier, attacking the inside leg, and then Poirier was timing his rear hand off those inside low kicks with crosses, which eventually would be what hurt Justin Gaethje and led up to the finish in round four. And then he would use the timing to like dart his way in and follow up with lead hook, uppercut, lead hook, right hook, lead uppercut, right hook, left body shot, right hook to the body. He was very good at manipulating the guard. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's the thing that Poirier is very good at. His boxing style is volume and pressure based. He's a very good counter boxer, very good counter check hook. He used that a lot against Conor McGregor. When McGregor tried to throw that lead uppercut, he would counter with the check hook and guard on the opposite side. He's very good at using the check hook, the rear uppercut. So he'll right hook, left uppercut, right hook, double jab, right hook, rear uppercut. He manipulates the high guard, and Gaethje is a user of the high guard even at this point in time. But the difference is Gaethje was a lot more stationary, and he moves a lot more now. He's nowhere near as stationary and on the center line now as he was before. And I know you're going to say, well, look at the Charles Oliveira fight. He got knocked out. He got dropped and then got submitted. He did, but he also dropped Oliveira twice. In the Poirier and Oliveira fight, Poirier dropped Oliveira a bunch of times, and then Oliveira was able to ground him. Poirier held that body triangle from the bottom. Um, he was landing good straight punches on Poirier in the opposite stance, good elbows, good knees from inside the clinch, and eventually found a way to climb onto his back and then submit him with that standing rear naked choke. This fight is going to be different. It's going to be a barn burner. It's going to be violent. But I think the main difference in this fight is going to be if Poirier uses his wrestling and if Gaethje stays composed. I think Gaethje is going to be the much more composed fighter. And I think he's the more technical fighter from an overall mixed martial arts perspective. The better boxer, the more technical boxer, the better combination artist with the boxing, that's going to be Poirier. And you can't really deny that even if you're picking Justin Gaethje to win the fight. Poirier is going to have the better boxing. He's going to have the better boxing combinations. He's going to be able to work those combos, work the body. And that's one thing that He's going to have to look out for, at least on the side of Gaethje, he's going to be the ripping to the body from Poirier. Even if it's with that front teeth kick, the rear teeth kick, the front kick to the body, the left uppercut, the right hook, the left hook, ripping the body shots from Poirier is going to be a big problem for Gaethje if he can't address it. But I think since Poirier or Gaethje isn't going to be on the center line in this fight as much as he was in the previous fight, I think that those long combinations are going to be harder for Poirier to execute because of the fact that Gaethje moves a lot more. He changes his stances. You saw him really implement those stance-changing combos in the interim title-winning performance against Tony Ferguson at UFC 249, using that jab, using the jab, and then one-two, switch southpaw, brief switch, bang that straight left or bang that overhand left. He switches stances. Poirier switches his stances. Um, but you saw him switch stance in the first fight that they had in that UFC on Fox main event. Um I think that the elevation is going to play a big factor in the fact that I feel Justin Gaethje is a lot more accustomed to fighting at elevation and training at elevation than Poirier. Poirier's a veteran. I'm sure he took it into consideration, but Gaethje's fighting out of Colorado. You know, he's in Colorado. Colorado is actually at a higher elevation than Salt Lake City, Utah. So he's used to training 
at elevation. He's used to working out in the mountains, used to working out at the elevation, you know, and stuff like that with elevation fight team and everything like that. So he's going to be more accustomed to fighting at that high altitude. Now I'm sure Poirier went there early. I'm sure he's accustomed to altitude as well, but I think that's going to play a big factor because I think this fight is going to be high paced. I think it's going to be, you know, balls to the wall, but I think Gaethje is going to be more composed. I think Gaethje is going to possibly use his wrestling from an offensive perspective because we saw how easily uh, Michael Chandler was able to take down Poirier, but we don't see Gaethje really resort to his wrestling offensively. He mainly likes to keep it on the feet and use it from a defensive perspective to be able to offensively strike with the opponent and really stop the grappling. But we saw at the end of the round against Fiziev in the third round, he actually shot a takedown and got the takedown to secure the round for himself. And that was a fight where I thought Gaethje was going to get picked apart and knocked out by Fiziev. And he showed to be very composed. Yeah, he got hit with some big shots, but he was very composed. He used that jab very effectively. His footwork, his head movement, his brief little sidesteps and shifts from stance to stance, the counter wrestling. I think that was one of the best and most well-rounded and complete performances that we've seen from Justin Gaethje in his entire UFC career. And I know a lot of people are going to take stock in Poirier and Gaethje's first fight. And you have to because... You know, this is a rematch, so you do have to look at that. And the biggest weapons for Gaethje in the first fight was the inside low kicks against Poirier. And for Poirier, it was the multi-shot combinations with the boxing, manipulating the high guard, and working the body shots. And I think we're going to see them resort to similar game plans here, but I just see Gaethje as being the more improved fighter from the last fight until now. I feel like I can see a lot more differences in Gaethje's game from a technical standpoint than I see from Poirier's game from a technical technical standpoint. Poirier probably uses his jiu-jitsu more, um, uses his wrestling more in recent fights. Um, his counterboxing has gotten better. I feel like he's better defensively, but when they get into those brawls and get into those wars, you know, Poirier kind of resorts to being the Poirier who just kind of throws those multi-shot combinations and stand and bangs. I mean, I think Gaethje, if he stands and bangs with Poirier and they just stand in the middle and trade, I do think that Gaethje would probably lose again, but I just see Gaethje making the bigger improvements. I don't think it's going to be as exciting as the first fight, but I also don't think it's going to last as long as the first fight did. I think Gaethje's footwork improvements, his lateral movement, his stance switches, um, his stance changing combinations, the usage, uh, the usage of his jab, the beautiful left hook, um, the inside and outside low kicks, but kind of just staying patient and letting the fight come to him and not overexerting himself and getting him put in positions, getting himself put in positions where he doesn't really need to put himself if he's ahead on the scorecards. I see a bigger difference in a lot more maturity in the Justin Gaethje that's fighting Poirier now. And I don't see as many differences and technical changes and aspects of Poirier's game from the first fight until now, while I see a lot more a lot more differences on the Gaethje side that are going to improve his performance against a fighter like Poirier. And I think the footwork, um, the jab of Gaethje, the counters of Justin Gaethje, um, just overall, the sharper, cleaner striking and the improvements he's made paired with the footwork, the head movement, the lateral movement, the changing of stances. I think he's going to be a really, really hard test for Poirier. And I actually think Gaethje's going to knock out Dustin Poirier in this fight. I could see Poirier having a more success to the body. I could see him using the calf kicks like he did against McGregor to maybe negate the kicking game and the low kicking game of Gaethje. I could definitely see that playing a factor here. But I think eventually Gaethje's just going to be cleaner. He's going to catch Poirier in between his shots with the jab and catch him with the counters, with the left hook, with the right cross, um, with the stance changing combinations. I think he catches Poirier on the chin standing up. 
drops him and knocks him out. I could see the fight going the distance, but I definitely wouldn't bet on that. I'm going to go with the underdog. I'm going to go with Justin Gaethje to get this one back and knock out Dustin Poirier in round three. I think he's going to be more composed. I think he's a lot more mature than the first fight. And I, like I said, I just think the, the, the more improvements from the first fight until now are on the side of Gaethje. Him always training in Colorado, which is at a higher elevation than Salt Lake City, Utah. I think the elevation is going to be a bigger factor for Poirier, which maybe means he can't push as hard of a pace and can't go as hard as he did in their first fight. So that is something you have to take into consideration. And based on the fact that Gaethje is accustomed to working out and training at a higher elevation, I think the the use being used to the elevation the technical improvements, the footwork improvements, the improved boxing, and the better overall technical advancements of Gaethje trump Poirier. And I think he's going to catch Poirier with the cleaner counters and eventually land a big one on the chin, land that right hand, or bang him with that left hook and knock out Dustin Poirier. I'm going with Justin, the highlight Gaethje, the number three ranked lightweight, to defeat the number two ranked Dustin, the diamond Poirier, via third round knockout in this fight to become the new BMF in the UFC. Um, when it comes to a betting perspective, I think um, I don't love betting on this fight. I mean, you could bet fight doesn't go to decision, but you never know. I mean, maybe it goes to decision. I like the underdog play on Gaethje at plus 125. I think that's the best play. I like Gaethje at a plus 125. I think they should be even money, but since Poirier won the first fight and he's looked good in recent performances against McGregor, against Chandler, um, you know, you have to take that into consideration, but I almost would venture to say that Gaethje had a better performance against Chandler than Poirier did. Like, I, I feel like Gaethje would w- have fought a better fight than Poirier, even though he didn't finish Chandler. I feel like the overall, when it comes to the overall fight, I think the Poirier and Chandler fight was a lot more competitive than the Gaethje and Chandler fight. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Gaethje third round knockout. I think the best play is Gaethje on the money line plus 125. Uh, the second best play would be fight doesn't go to decision. Um, they they have on DraftKings the over 2.5. I could see that hitting, but I don't love it because I did call third round knockout. So it might not hit that midpoint in the third round. But I like Gaethje to knock out Poirier, become the new BMF champion, and set himself up for a potential lightweight title shot. But I got to go with the dog here. All right, that's going to be it for my UFC 291 preview predictions and breakdown. The fights take place this upcoming Saturday night from the Delta Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Main event, Poirier and Gaethje for the BMF Championship. Co-main event, Alex Pereira, Jan Blahovich. What a phenomenal card, stacked from top to bottom, and I can't wait. And let's make some money for UFC 291. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out.